the Brown Pundits Browncast. So I'm here to talk with Carl Ja uh, about a story that has been in the news in Pakistan, to some extent the Western media, and um, I'm assuming China as well. Uh, and it is about the importation of uh, brides or, you know, alleged brides. I mean, it seems like some of these are legitimate brides um, from Pakistan. These tend to be young Christian women. And um, the Chinese men say that they converted to Christianity or they're recent converts. And they're looking for wives. As many of you probably know, there is a deficit of marriageable women in many age cohorts in China um, due to you know, um, uh, sex-selective abortion or infanticide, um, you know, just mortality rate differences when they're young. Um, these are sometimes called bare branches, uh, you know, in the academic literature and the historical literature. And um, the issue with this importation of brides from other countries um, is manifold. Um, there's just the general issue of power imbalance uh, when you have men from a more powerful or wealthy nation um, bringing women over from a less powerful and wealthy nation. And that is usually what's happening. And traditionally, it's happened from nations like Laos and Vietnam. The Pakistan case is really interesting because, um, to me, it was a little surprising because it's further afield. And um, if you have a Vietnamese wife in China, particularly South China, I think people probably would not notice immediately that there's a foreign woman in the village. I mean, they're both East Asian. Uh, they look relatively similar. Obviously, Pakistani women look quite different. So um, one thing to me is um, I'm thinking if this is a trend, um, it means that the situation is frankly quite de desperate in China because, uh, you know, these are not... These are very, very different culturally, and um, they don't look traditionally East Asian, um, you know, and I mean, Pakistan is relatively far away from China. Yes, it borders China, but Western China, so it's relatively far away from population centers. Um, it, it's indicative of a desperate situation. Now, the problem is there are lots of allegations about um, impropriety, abuse, um, as extreme as prostitution. Um, that these women are actually recruited for prostitution and not marriage. And in other cases, some more banal issues, for example, the men um, advertise themselves as very wealthy, and it just turns out that they are factory workers in China, and so they aren't very wealthy. Um, they're wealthier than what these women would probably find in Pakistan, partly because they're from often from poor Christian families. Christians in Pakistan tend to be marginalized um, and less well off. And um, so that's one situation. There are lurid rumors of uh, organ harvesting. I'm going to just like honestly say that I ignore those sorts of rumors because that seems like it's almost a trope um, of particular ethnic groups that sometimes want to be demonized and also, um, organ harvesting rumors are so sensational that they exhibit a tendency towards virality. And when you dig deep, in 99% of the cases, there's almost no corroborating evidence of those rumors. Now, that is not always true. There are instances, um, you know, in various situations where they, they have turned out to be true. But, I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, 
it's just such a sensational tabloid claim. It's almost impossible for people not to share it. And there are certain preconceptions that people have about authoritarianism and just the frank, almost Darwinian brutality of life in China today with the competition um, in the new you know, capitalist order that I think it is appealing to a lot of people's intuitions. But um, I think we can set that, set that aside and just talk about the broader issues, which I think are reasonable and plausible. And they're not just limited to China. You know, this has happened in Japan and South Korea in the past when they had cohorts that were gender imbalanced, sex imbalanced. So it's not surprising that it's happening in China. My main point with China is this is a nation that's, that's um, you know, 10 to 20 times more populous than China or South Korea. And so when China has a demographic imbalance, it's like a huge distortion, a huge demographic distortion in the local, you know, space-time continuum. And so it's affecting so many nations. And um, a nation like Laos, there's no way that Laos can make a dent in China's demographic imbalance because there's not enough people in Laos. Uh, in contrast, you know, Pakistan does actually have a fair amount of fair amount of people, though, um, you know, culture, the cultural norm and to some extent interpretations of Sharia law is that non-Muslim men cannot, um, you know, take a Muslim wife. So there's a bar in that direction currently. Um, I don't know if that's going to persist indefinitely uh, just due to um, the alliance, like part of this looming in the background is the geopolitical alliance between China and Pakistan, which is really close because you do have to wonder um, why don't Chinese men just go to India uh, where there's plenty of non-Muslim women where there's not a a definitive bar on intermarriage, but um, you know, the, the geopolitical relationship there is not closer. So, you know, I've been rambling on from what little I know at the 50,000 foot view um, what I'm curious about is Carl's perspective as someone who is right now in China and so presumably has been reading about this in the Chinese media. So, Carl, can you can you tell the listeners out there what you know from your perspective? Okay. Um, so I first heard about um, this is through Chinese social media. Um, I saw some uh, spot a year or a couple years ago. I saw some advertisement for... Pakistani bride. Um, at, at the time, I almost I, I initially I dismissed as a joke because literally the people were posting um, screenshot of advertisement like on you know on lamppost um, <laughs> with with uh, people advertising for um, Pakistani bride with with their phone with phone numbers and. And uh, he also claimed to be under the auspices of Chinese official one belt one row policy, right? So for the for your listeners who are not familiar with uh, belt and row initiative of the Chinese government, it's this uh, very comprehensive uh, strategy to build um, uh, both geopolitical alliances and also. Uh, but just massive infrastructure project investment in other countries all over the world. Um, but with, with the, the, <laughs> the, the, with the build and road initiative, um, contrary to understanding in much of the Western world, it's not, um, it's not like a detailed, 
a long-term Chinese plan that's that's worked out in every uh, facet of details. It's actually a, a proposal by the Chinese President Xi Jinping, and um, in practice, it's like various Chinese entities, like whether state companies, private companies, um, they they let's say they will claim that somehow they are taking part in this uh, Belt and Road Initiative. By the way, Belt and Road Initiative stands for, um, I think, Silk Road Economic Belt and Maritime Silk Road. It's it's kind of clunky um, acronym in English, but uh, the whole point is that these uh, marriage brokers in China Right, they're trying to sell this idea of Pakistani brides to, um, <laughs> to I guess desperate Chinese hus would be husband that uh, you know this is some sort of legit business and somehow they operate under the kind of the official government uh, sanctioned uh, Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, it was just so laughable at the at the time. I just dismiss it as a joke. Um, but then I start seeing more and more um, in Chinese social media on Weibo uh, specifically. Uh, you know, people even post images and videos of uh, you know Chinese men marrying Pakistani women. And my reaction was probably similar to yours. It was like, what the heck? You know, like um, what's going on here? And, and uh, this this phenomenon. I have seen with you know occurring with other many other Chinese neighboring countries like specifically Vietnam and Myanmar. Um, as you already addressed, you know there is a serious gender imbalance inside China, um, and I think there's two issues here. One, on one hand, there's a gender imbalance in China. There's a lack of uh, marriageable women, um, but. On the other hand, there's also um, it's also a socioeconomic thing. Uh, there's a phenomenon in China, so-called phenomenon in China, called the leftover women, right? That that Chinese government and Chinese media are supposed to stress up, stress out about are these um, uh, in what in their eyes, you know, overeducated middle class urban women who may have been too picky in their younger days and now somehow they're they're older now and they're they're being left over right um the thing is you know china the chinese men uh particularly in the rural areas they don't have many options when it comes to the marriage market right because the the <laughs> of the you know the the, the the top picks of the Chinese women will be uh, the urban middle class or upper middle class Chinese men, and and that this is combination of two factors is creating a, basically a market that these marriage brokers are trying to exploit. Uh, it's funny because I lived in China back in 1980s, and back then uh, it was actually quite common for Chinese women to marry out to you know marry Japanese men, particularly uh, you know because in 1980s 
China was so desperately poor, everybody was trying to get out um, because prior to that, you know, China was in a period known as Cultural Revolution. And during Cultural Revolution, everybody in China was basically being told that everybody else living outside the border of People's Republic of China were living in dire conditions, right? And uh, But by the time Cultural Revolution is over, Mao died, then Xiaoping opened up the country. Uh, that's when most Chinese realized, oh, crap, <laughs> it's not the rest of the world that was living in dire condition. It's us. And at the time, pretty much every child, uh, like, every neighboring country of China was doing better than, than China. I mean, the only country that was doing more poorly than China at the time in 1980s was probably uh, just Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Basically, countries that just came out of war. Um, just to give you some perspective, China, like North Korea in 1980s, enjoyed a higher standard of living than China. Um, and so, so for me, it was, uh, you know, you took some, took some getting used to that. Now the, the trend is being reversed. Now the, you know, the Chinese, Chinese men actually looking abroad for, for wives, um, initially was in, um, just poor countries like, like Vietnam and Myanmar, um, particularly uh, Myanmar because, well, even like you said, you know, like there's not too much cultural difference between, say, China and Vietnam, right? Other than the linguistic difference. Um, and, and with, even with Myanmar, um, there's, there's a larger degree of cultural difference, but at least, you know, they still look East Asian. And, and, and in cultural, in, in particularly case of Myanmar, um, there's a lot of uh, trafficking of women from North Myanmar into China. And Northern Myanmar is an area with uh, you know, a lot of um, ethnic insurgencies. Um, so like basically uh, that area has been at war with the central Myanmar government since uh, independence of Myanmar from the British. And, and you know, frankly, the government of Myanmar doesn't give a shit about people over there, you know, like for all the ethnic minorities of Kachin and the, uh, and the Shan people, uh, Myanmar government could care less whether their women were being trafficked into China. Um, and from the Chinese perspective like that, um, it's, it's an issue that was never looked at because, uh, it's, only look at as possible like immigration issue, right? Like the Chinese cops would deport these uh, Myanmar wives if someone reported them, uh, then they will be deported for violating the, the Chinese immigration law. But, but it's hardly look at as a problem in human trafficking, which, which is what it is. And um, especially a lot of these uh, marriage brokers are, they're, let's face it, they're pretty shady. Um, you know, their goal is to make a buck and like how they do it. A lot of times, you know, they, they cooperate with, um, 
the other shady organization in the counterpart countries. And I'm sure that's, from what I read, that seems to be the case with Pakistan as well. Um, Basically, these these illegal um, marriage brokers inside China, um, they're just uh, trying to exploit a market. And now that China is investing heavily in Pakistan, um, you know, Pakistan was is kind of a linchpin country in the Belt and Road Initiative of China. Uh, China is committed to invest a huge amount of money into Pakistan and building our infrastructure, linking it with China. And so these unscrupulous actors, they will come to Pakistan, uh, you know, work with their local counterparts in Pakistan. Um, Essentially, they're trafficking women into China to marry these uh, uh, men in the rural area who would normally be considered unmarriageable material inside China. Um, and, And... Except in this case, it caused a huge uproar in Pakistan because it has been reported in Pakistani media. You know, unlike the case with Myanmar, because um, <laughs> Myanmar government could, couldn't care less because a lot of the time of the women that were trafficking into China from northern Myanmar are uh, part of the um, ethnic minority groups, either Kachin or, or Shan. Um, and... And, you know, nobody really kind of uh, took their side. But in the case of Pakistan, because there's such an outcry about the intermarriage, and especially there's some very sensational report about organ have harvesting, which I don't think they're true, um, that Chi- Chinese government right now is in a, in a um, basically damage control mode. So they, they've... They took it very seriously. Um, they're cracking down on these illegal marriage brokers in an effort to basically... Uh, sorry to interrupt you, yeah, uh, Carl, but you know, usually from the Pakistani perspective, it's always seen that um, uh, Pakistan is always the recipient, like it's a very asymmetrical power relationship. So it's quite interesting now to see that how sensitive China is to Pakistan's, uh, Pakistani sentiments in that sense. Because from the Pakistani angle, from what I know, it's always seen as China, we need China more than China may need us. So it's, I mean, that's an interesting angle that I just wanted to explore that uh, how important is, I mean, I don't know how related it is to what you're saying right now, but how important is Pakistan to China's conception of foreign policy? You know, that's what I would like to just explore a bit from the Chinese angle. Oh, right, right. So, I mean, uh, Traditionally, you know, the, the Chinese-Pakistan relationship is been characterized as so-called all-weather relationship. And it has been the case since basically 1962, when China and India fought a brief war. And uh, that ever since then, uh, you know, Pakistan and China moved closer and closer together. Um, you know, it's really like kind of this, like almost de facto alliance uh, versus India, basically, in, the, in geopolitical terms. And, and it's only till, I mean, it's only till very recently it has been translated into a more, um, into more like cultural and economic sphere, because 
since 1962 to, you know, about, let's say, 2000, most of the Pakistan-Chinese relationship was um, geopolitical, military, you know, like political. Right? It was like it hasn't really translated into other spheres. But now with a lot of Chinese investment coming into Pakistan, um, and, and, you know, in, in some cases are Chinese engineers, Chinese workers going to Pakistan. There's a lot more culture interaction at, at like, a, like a society level, right? And, and I think that really um, pushed a sensitive but, button inside Pakistan, you know, oh my God, they're coming over to take our women, right? That's, that's like a sensitive issue would be in any country. And, and but in, in case of um, the position of Pakistan in the Chinese foreign policy perspective, um, China, let's face it, you know, Pakistan is not the stablest country <laughs> in the world. But because, um, you know, like, like China has a stake in seeing Pakistan stabilized, that, that's, that is why China is committing a large sum of money into Pakistan. And, I mean, a lot of these so-called Belt and Road initiatives, uh, a lot of time it's more uh, talk than substance. But in the case of Pakistan, China is actually committed um, to, to invest bulk of the money set aside for the Belt and Road initiative. It's building like ports, uh, roads, uh, power plants, a uh, lot of infrastructure building in Pakistan. And, and you know, from China's perspective, it's hoping by investing a large sum of money into Pakistan, you know, you, you can help to stabilize Pakistan economy, uh, preventing it to become like, a, I would say, a more of a failed state uh, compared to India that, that, you know, like that way, um, Pakistan can be like it's uh, you know be, be like the um, it, it be play the the traditional role in South Asia for China basically a a, a counterpart a, like a counterbalance against India right and and so that's the the Chinese foreign policy perspective and it doesn't want to. Like something like this, uh, this intermarriage issue to stir up the waters, right? Like that's why they're they're finally cracking down on these official marriage brokers. Versus uh, prior, you know, China really didn't go after uh, people trafficking women, say from North Myanmar, because that that's just like that that was like a non-issue because the Myanmar government didn't care about it, right? Um, but this issue is obviously very important. Carl, um, uh, Carl could I just sure. ask you a quick question? I, I'm going to be like, uh, we'll talk about the. Uh, I was thinking that if you had to rank, like the uh, the reason I'm asking is because we talk about this a lot at Brown Pundits, and especially in Pakistan, the chatter is about China. You know, it's an overwhelming uh, power, and in some ways, the joke is that we're like the peaceful singeing. You know, we we had like the happy, uh, uh, whatever you call your Muslim pro province. Is it called Xinjiang? I don't know the exact pronunciation. Oh, Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Xinjiang, yeah. You mean Xinjiang? Yeah, so we're like the peaceful yeah, yeah. of China. And so if you had to rank, like, say, the top three, 
China foreign policies in terms of countries where, or top five or top 10? Like, where, where would Pakistan be in all of that? Like, th- this is a question that a lot of Pakistanis think about. So I think our listeners and Indians as well, by the way. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> okay, so the thing with China is uh, unlike the United States, which enjoy a, a, a series of alliances right around the world, um, especially in the Asia Pacific region, China doesn't have many countries that it can consider its alliance partners, right? Like Pakistan is a is one of the exception because um, I I think right mostly because its antagonistic relationship with India um, and and its and because its troubled relationship with United States. Um, especially since the end of the Cold War. So in that way, you know, the China-Pakistan relationship became the so-called all-weather relationship. And from China's perspective, um, one of the goal of its uh, Belt and Road initiative is to bring a tighter integration of the um, Eurasian landmass. You know, like China is trying to reach out to the market in Europe as well as in, in West Asia. In, in that sense, you know, Pakistan become very important, you know, because Pakistan plays a very important role in the future of Afghanistan. Um, it, it plays a very important role in, um, in potential Chinese connectivity with um, Central Asia, West Asia, and even potentially South Asia, right? And, uh, you know, that, that's why China is investing a large sum of money into building up uh, roads and ports in Pakistan to linking it up with China. Um, so, like, basically broaden Chinese reach into far further afield into places like Persian Gulf. Um, one of the Chinese project is uh, uh, the port of Gwadar, right, which is very close to the uh, Strait of Hormuz, the, the um the, the opening of Persian Gulf, the, the you know, eventual goal was, you know, China's Chinese uh, energy uh, imports from Persian Gulf, whether oil or gas, can uh, go via pipeline through Gwadar, through Pakistan, all the way to its, uh, its uh, um, region of Xinjiang in the West. That way, the Chinese could avoid um, over-reliance of uh, um, ocean shipment which can always be choked off by the U.S. Navy, especially through the Straits of Malacca, which is a very strategic choking point near Singapore. And, and that's, that's what, how the Chinese strategic thinkers uh, think about it, right? They're just trying to diversify um, the, the, the Chinese uh, energy imports, uh, import route, that way, um, you know, if a potential conflict breaks out with the United States, uh, it's not going to be dead in the water if the, the U.S. Navy 7th Fleet decide to block blockade the, the streets of Malacca. Um, that's why it's not only building all this infrastructure in Pakistan, but it was building all the, the gas pipeline in Myanmar as well. So, um, so the whole the ideas is... But I feel like Myanmar has come out of the orbit of uh, China, like to some extent. Um, Am I wrong in that uh, analysis? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like there was a hope. Um, Like this was, this is 
U.S. basically made a bid to move Myanmar out of China's orbit, right? That's that was the whole thing of uh, uh, the the Myanmar government allow uh, the election, which uh, was won by Aung San Suu Kyi's political party. Um, but I think too much chagrin of the uh, United States that uh, even after Aung San Suu Kyi's political party ascended. Uh, to power in Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi herself made an overture to China. It, because, it, that's just because um, in terms of willingness to invest in places like Myanmar, um, you know, China is w- willing to take on a lot more risk than, say, some Western companies because uh, for, for China, it's also geopolitical. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strategic decision to invest in Myanmar than versus, say, um, some U.S. company who might have better options in, in like, a more stable um, parts of the world, right? And, 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 and yes, uh, there was attempt to pry Myanmar away from China, but China's influence in Myanmar is still very much in place and you know the, the the pipeline was already built it is now like it's pumping gas from uh, basically um bay of bengal all the way to the chinese southwestern um, province of yunnan i was in yunnan just like a, a month ago um i saw the chinese currently right now china is building out um high-speed rail all the way to the myanmar border I see like concrete pylons being being building uh, being built out in in the tropical jungles on my visit there. Um, there's a whole like whole infrastructure development along the the, the China Myanmar border that you know the China is uh, is rushing to complete. So, but we kind of <laughs> stray from our original topic a little bit. So, so my uh, to make a, a, a long answer short. Pakistan is very important, uh, almost a linchpin in the in the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative, um, because its strategic position and because its traditional relationship with China, and and that is why uh, you know Chinese government don't want the <laughs> don't want to rock the boat by something like this uh, inter- this is like some very sensational. Uh, and, and and very emotional issue of like intermarriages, right? Like that that's something that Chinese government is not is uh, <laughs> don't, it's something it's not something that the Chinese government is uh, want to uh, jeopardize its existing relationship with Pakistan with. Right. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's quite a revelation to be honest because. Uh, you know, usually when you're Pakistani, you think the chips are always down. So <laughs> it's quite interesting to see how important how important we are to at least one person, uh, one country. I meant, you know, it's nice in a way. Yeah, I think. Uh, 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 I mean, this is probably be interested to your Southeast a South Asian audience is that um, in part it's because. The unwillingness of India, uh, basically, at least to officially sign on to the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, India just has a huge market. I mean, Chinese companies are basically chomping at bits trying to get in, get, get in some of the action. But India has always been very wary of 
of uh, you know too much Chinese influence getting in the country, and and so Pakistan is almost kind of like the the back door almost for China to get into South Asia, um, you know, because be, you know like like I think China would very much like India to um, you know open its door to the Chinese uh, uh, <laughs> products and investment, and but but right now. India is very reluctant, so you know Pakistan is the next. Uh, uh, you know, it's an, <laughs> it's the next best choice. Does that does that does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Raziv, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I just listen to you guys. Um, so it's a it's it's a great conversation. Um, so the geopolitical part is interesting. Um, so you know, honestly, I. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, in terms of raw numbers, I'm assuming this is going to be relatively small. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll go, come back to Zach um, to ask more about the Pakistani view because he might know more about that. But so from the Chinese perspective, what I'm confused about or curious about is, um, you know, it, this sort of like marriage movement is not shocking due to gender imbalances it happens in india itself where in the punjab in the northwest right across the border from pakistan there's china levels of imbalance and um, traditionally women from other parts of india have been brought in to intermarry and also in parts of uttar pradesh this was also an issue um part of the problem is much of southern and western india is much more prosperous than northern india um, punjab is pretty prosperous but um there's not enough difference where women would actually move. So they have to, you know, bring in women from, you know, they used to bring in women from Bangladesh sometimes, but again, Bangladesh has like enough economic growth. Now that's not uh, much of a, uh, a source. So they go to Assam in the Northeast. So they keep looking around. Right. And one of the things when you read the ethnography is these women are culturally different. They look somewhat physically different. They're, you know, smaller and darker, usually these sorts of things. And, um, there is a, um, uh, let's say that there's a there's sort of a stigma associated with the children uh, somewhat from these mixed marriages and um, you know there are actually lineages where they're traditionally like mixed now where even though they're culturally the same as the other people in these areas of India um, since their ancestry ha is from these other groups other castes other religions other ethnicities um, you know and in, as you know in India endogamy is a really big thing. There's these like lineage groups and communities. Um, so I wonder from the Chinese perspective, um, what I was surprised by is I know that, um, you know, Chinese Chinese people traditionally very, um, they, they prize fair skin. And also, I mean, it's just physically obvious that except unless if it's someone from the very far northeast of India, you know, this woman is obviously a foreigner, um, you know, unlike Vietnamese where, you know, if she doesn't talk, yeah, she could probably pass as Chinese, you know, especially in like the southern half of China, right? And so, um, um, I'm just wondering, what is the Chinese like, um, just reaction to this sort of thing? Because, I mean, I'm sure that at some point, like, we could have a situation where women from Central Asia start coming into China at this rate, then too. I mean, a lot of it is just like the population of the source countries, because. You know, Pakistan has a large population. Right now, it's a taboo for Muslim women to marry non-Muslim men. But if this relationship, if uh, Pakistan remains, um, uh, you know, China's sh Shih Tzu 
or chow chow, you know, like the, the relationship is very close. Like we could see cultural norms change even in like for Muslims, which is a much larger segment of the population of a, marriageable women um but what's the chinese perspective on these women that look very different where they're visibly foreign and they're gonna have mixed offspring i mean you know what do you think although i do have to say i don't know what the chinese perspective is but i know the south asian perspective is when you see someone that is of mixed east asian and south asian heritage they just look like a darker skinned east asian that's the perception from the south asian view so i don't know if like that's gonna have like second generation knock-ons but anyway what's your view on that I do want to point out, you know, there are there are uh, over 20 million Muslims in China and among the, the Muslim population in China, there's less of, a, uh, let's say, um, restriction um, marrying, um, say, Muslim women in Pakistan. Right. Because religiously, there was there's not such a taboo in, in that in that case. And and like and also the the same gender imbalance also happened among the Muslim population in China as well. Um, so at least you know among the the the, the twenty million uh, Muslims in China, there's there will not be that that kind of there will be a less of an issue, right? Let's say. And um, I, I actually shouldn't be surprised that you know this is happening because. Um, just a few years back, um, I know about this guy, this Chinese guy started basically a marriage agency trying to introduce Ukrainian women to, you know, the Chinese bachelors, except he was, a he was running a more like aiming for like an upscale market. <laughs> he, he was a, a targeting like, a, you know, like a certain demographic, uh, in China, like he was trying to aim for, um, like us more like upper middle class bachelors like because he was charging a whole heck of a lot uh, and this guy was basically a chinese guy who migrated to ukraine um like in the late 90s and like now he's established in ukraine his business he has a wife over there and he became popular in chinese social media i think in part because he has like he's such a novelty, like a Chinese guy in Ukraine, and uh, on the top of that, he has a he has a hot Ukrainian wife, and 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 somehow he leveraged his uh, popularity um, to like made it made made a business out of it. I mean, I, I guess because of war in Ukraine, and he he he's in, also in the east part of Ukraine too. He, he's in like the car, um, I think I'm gonna butcher it, like Kharkov the second largest city in Ukraine, uh, mm. not in the part that's fighting, but kind of close. And, and, and Ukrainian economy has been really suffering in the last decade uh, because of the conflict. And now he's, uh, you know, he saw, <laughs> he saw opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, combine the desperate Ukrainian women trying to get out and, you know, some Chinese bachelor looking for, for brides. And so I, I shouldn't be surprised that, you know, same thing was being replicated in Pakistan, but targeting a different, say, demographics, right? Mostly rural Chinese men. And also, I like to point out that the, the, the problem with rural Chinese men 
uh, finding wife actually dates back even to 1980s when I was still a child in China. Back then, uh, one of the major issues that was reported in Chinese media is, you know, the kidnapping of, say, like the Chinese women from the cities, you know, all these urban middle class Chinese women being kidnapped and being sold by uh, human traffickers as wife in rural areas. And it's it's like uh, in China, like especially in 1980s, the, the, the city and the, the countryside is almost like two different worlds. There, there used to be a joke that, you know, the, the, the people in the Chinese cities, they, they, they're in the first world and the people in the Chinese countryside, in the, in the farms, they're, they live in the third world, right? I mean, this is very sharp, uh, stark difference. And also, um, it, it also like it's a, it's a kind of the urban, shocking to the urban middle-class Chinese sensibility that these uh, educated urban Chinese women will be kidnapped and sold off as wives to some like, uh, you know, illiterate Chinese farmer, right? And and um, just a couple of years ago, in fact, there was a Chinese media report. They they, they reported on a woman who who um, is a who is a teacher in a very like some boondocks place in China, like very rural part of China. But um, in the report, it came out that the woman originally was kidnapped. Right and sold off as a wife to a local farmer, uh, but the, the 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 article ended up kind of in kind of praising her for for you know accepting her like made something out of her circumstances and then uh, came to like accept her circumstances and and adapt to it and then you know become a teacher to the local children and and that article actually caused a huge uproar inside China because. People were like, "What? What kind of value you're trying to promote here? You know, this this woman was a victim of of kidnapping and human trafficking, and you are praising her for um, accepting her fate, <laughs> basically." And but so uh, anyway, so the the what we're seeing right now is that um, that that dynamic instead of playing out domestically is kind of been spilling over to China's bordering countries like Pakistan, where um, understandably, you know, it caused a lot of controversy and then push a lot of hot, hot buttons. Um, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, so so please feel free to jump in anytime. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think what you're trying to say here, or what, what the impression I'm getting is, this is a small piece of a much bigger puzzle yes. and a much bigger dynamic, which makes sense um, with a nation like China, which is going through economic do- dynamism, cultural change, and also its population of 1.4 billion or so. Um, I'm assuming that's an underestimate because of you know people that are not on the books, but in any mm-hmm. case, it's, it's close enough. Um, and so then you compare it to a nation like, I don't know, Ukraine with like, you know, 40 or 50 million or whatever, you know, people. Um, obviously it's going to have like a big impact. And I was actually looking at the GDP per capita and Ukraine is actually lower right now, partly yeah. because of the war, you know, but, um, you know, like nations like Russia, their GDP per capita now is not yeah. really much greater than China's at all. And then India is still considerably lower, but, um, you know, still you have yeah. these Asian nations coming up. Um, I, I guess like, you know, the, the question that I want to get at though, is like, um, so you're talking about these Ukrainians and, you know, I don't know, um, 
you know, I only have perceptions and stereotypes. Let's be honest. I don't know about like Chinese culture, but you know, I can see like, there's still a view that, you know, white people, Western people are mm-hmm. an advanced civilization, right. In terms of yeah. just like, cause the 20th century, yes. you know, let's see, let's be, let's be honest, like 20th century. And so like having a um, Western wife might be uh, a white um, wife. Cause like you can be non-white and Western, obviously a white wife might be a little, um, Mm-hmm. almost like a status symbol mm-hmm. exotic you know um obviously it's it, i'm not saying it's like totally positive because you know there is some level of ethnocentrism wherever you go um but you know it that's probably not going to be like that big of a deal um i guess what i'm asking though is like uh uh you know having like oh you know having a wife from vietnam for example that's almost, I feel like my perception would be that's almost like undercover. Like, yes, if someone knew you, they would know that this is a foreign person and you have a, a you know, in the United States having a quote unquote mail order bride is, um, it's kind of like, it's, it's a little bit of a social hit. Like, I mean, that's, it's an awkward thing. I, I don't know too many people that have done it, but I've heard of them. And even if, even if, um, the wife is actually educated and it's almost like an arranged marriage situation, it's still awkward in the context of American culture to have to explain this situation. And people have certain suspicions of, of like why you did this. Like, are you a loser or, you know, is it, is there abuse going on now? So I, I mean, even look at Richard Murdoch, I mean, like uh, Murdoch, mm-hmm. right. I mean, uh, he, he had a, he had a, at one point he married a Chinese mm-hmm. wife. And I remember there was a video going viral when, um, when he appeared in court, someone was throwing a pie at Murdoch and his uh, Chinese wife basically blocked it. And then a lot of people, first of all, they were surprised that his wife was a lot younger and there were comments like, like male bride order much, you know? <laughs> and, and you know that even as for someone in his position, right? I mean, like people would bring that as something against him, like as, as a social mark. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, and also, like, so I'm just per- I'm just wondering about like the Chinese perception here because, you know, South Asia is relatively underdeveloped compared to China right now. Um, also, these women are probably darker skinned. Their features are such they're obviously not East Asian. Okay, so it mm-hmm. like these rural men, it just like sticks out that they have these foreign women from, and they're not they're not like blonde Ukrainians here. Like we're talking like. They're kind of like swarthy, you know. Well, see, it's, a, it's funny that you, because um, the, <laughs> the sense of a racial category is a little bit different in China than, say, other parts of the world. It, there, every part of the world has its own partic- particular. Um, I remember one time, uh, so the funny thing that you mentioned about the looks, right? Because the Chinese are not this very sophisticated uh, in many cases that uh, uh, because a lot of, uh, in fact, a lot of Pakistani men, right, that were coming over to China as exchange students or businessmen uh, ever since like 80s, basically, a lot of them have like pretty good success with, with the Chinese women in part because um, they, you know, in China, there's there's a pers- there's basically two categories, right? You're either Chinese or you're foreign, and uh, and the, the 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 Pakistani would obviously fall into the foreign um, category, and many times, like they just look Western enough 
for, for the Chinese, <laughs> in the Chinese eyes, that, you know, a lot of the Pakistani men, the reason they had a lot of success, uh, you know, in the in times of uh, dating and marriage market in China is because they look close enough as Western <laughs> in Chinese eyes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, we heard, yeah. we heard yesterday, uh, we did a podcast and it was like, distant cousins in the indo-european families as <laughs> if you remember that yeah yeah so, so i i i guess you know i don't know maybe like america is south africa for the 21st century because i feel like we have very precise and specific categories yes. that we try to export to the rest of the world and other people are like wait 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 you know like you, you seem to have a science of this yeah your own head and yeah, yeah. In fact, um, the one reminding me of, I, I saw this YouTube video a while back. It's a, it's a bunch of African-American guys. They were in China. They were handing out, um, they were just asking opinions of Chinese passerbys on the streets, right? They're handing out like the, like famous the photograph of some very famous African-Americans and, and ask the Chinese to identify their race, right? And, and, and you know, of course, in most cases, a lot of the fair-skinned uh, African American uh, personality pers- pers- personalities that they the, 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 on the photograph that that the Chinese people just assumed they were white. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> because- I, well, I saw I the I saw a thing in Korea. They were showing people American celebrities and. Um, they were showing Korean men Beyonce, and they're like, "What do you think about her?" And they're like, "Oh, she's very beautiful. She she tans a little too much. That seems unhealthy." And then people are like, "She's black," and they're like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she probably does the opposite, Beyonce. She, yeah, I mean, she she's getting lighter with every passing. Well, year. I mean, that's no, that's but, a Photoshop, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Even um, funnily enough, like in Uganda. African Americans were often taken to be white because I mean it was just like obviously they their colors is not the same colors the traditional Africans so you saw the same thing there where they were just not coded as black so mm-hmm. it's just an interesting dynamic I thought I would add yeah yeah and in Chinese case there there will be a little bit of colorism over here so so let's say like a like a fair skinned uh, a Pakistani or or close enough <laughs> they can pass off as you know like western whereas uh, someone who is obviously with more let's say uh southeast asian features that that they might they might not right so so there, there will be a there will be considerably difference in, in how people were treated based on their looks right and um and, and and you are right. You are right. There is definitely a a, a, a minus against people with um, darker skin. Um, and yeah, I, I just don't know. Like I mean, like right now, it's just not a. The, I know it's a huge deal in the Pakistani media, but this this whole thing is barely a ripple in in the Chinese uh, media space. I only knew about it because I initially saw these those ads for Pakistani brides in Chinese social media and I was like, what the heck? And then on Twitter I saw all these like outrage, you know, uh, coming from Pakistan about this issue. Um, but but in terms of uh, to the Chinese domestic uh, audience, many people probably not even aware of this whole whole thing. And uh, and in terms of how people like that will be perceived 
first of all, like these are mostly rural Chinese men, right? And I mean, even in in case of um, like people who import wives from Myanmar, right? Like in rural villages, everybody knows everybody. It's like doesn't matter if you can pass as Chinese physically, people will know that so and so has a wife from Vietnam or from from Myanmar, and and also like people also would know that oh this that person went to get a wife in you know from vietnam or myanmar or pakistan or whatever the case is because he has problem finding wife locally right i mean like like that would just be understood and um and in terms of how like their wives will be or their children will be perceived um more widely in the society I mean, right now there's just not too many cases, right? I would say like that. That's to be even like on the radar of you know a lot of the Chinese media. Um, like I, I mean, like there there are some some. Um, I think the most famous case was uh, was just a few years ago, a Lojing, who was who was um, raised by a Chinese single mother. And and her dad. Carl, could I just uh, could, could I just interject with one question? You know, like uh, Razib alluded to that in India we saw regional uh, matchmaking. So p- uh, women from Bihar go to Punjab. Do, uh, is there a phenomenon of that in China itself, where poorer Chinese provinces are sending girls to richer Chinese provinces as well? Is there any regional ah, dynamic? Ah, okay, so. This you have to look into the broader context of the Chinese economic development. Um, you know, obviously the chi- Chinese is a lot more the Chinese cities on the east coast is a lot more economically developed than the hinterland out in the west or the center. Um, so what 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 have been happening in the last uh, three decades is the Chinese miracle happened on the coast, right? So all these Chinese, young Chinese women after out of high school uh, or college, whatever, mostly high school, they come out of the inner provinces um, and they will go travel to coastal cities for work, all right? That, that's part what drove the Chinese miracle is all these migrant laborers from poor provinces going to, you know, coastal regions like Guangdong, like, like uh, area like Shanghai, um, I mean, that's that's still happening today. Um, in fact, that um, uh, I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if I almost should talk about it, but um, th- but it's not um, it's not like uh, say say specifically for marriage. It's this phys- people were physically moving for jobs, so so they were they're physically moving from one region of the part of the China to a totally different region with different language, different cultural uh, culture, and and uh, everything is getting shift around a bit in China itself. Um, but 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 um, of course these these um, Chinese women, you know, like like the local men on the East Coast, they they will definitely have a leg up, right, in the marriage market because they have residents in these wealthy cities. Um, they're presumably wealthier and they're, you know, 
of course, they will have a leg up in the in the in the marriage market. They will have more appeal to say say these girls from farms of uh, out west, right? But but it's more like an organic process than say um, like a, a like a marriage broker or arrange to have women from one part of China going to other part of China for the specific purpose of getting married. Uh, it's more like these women are already here. They're already out in the East Coast cities on their own. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that was, that's good. Um, Carl, can I ask you a question about um, just like gender choices of marriage and dating and stuff yeah. like that in China? So um, one of the issues is, you know, different cultures have different norms about this sort of thing. Um, so in South Asia and in West Asia, like say the Arab Arab countries, you know, Islamic countries, Iran, etc., there is an extreme um, tendency towards mate guarding. Let's put it that way. Um, and like, you know, in Islamic countries, if you convert to Islam, if a foreign man converts to Islam, maybe. But this was one of the issues with the American occupation in Iraq. It wasn't like Vietnam where there could be liaisons with local women. Um, the local women were just not available unless the soldiers right. converted to Islam. Or, or local Christian women. It was extremely taboo. Right. Yeah, but even the Christian women, I mean, there aren't that many, but yeah, that's fair. That is, that is, I have heard that. And so, you know, there's that going on. And in South Asia, I mean, even if, um, you know, within Hinduism, like converting is not as much of a thing, partly because mm-hmm. it's so caste-based, right? And so you have this thing where like violence gets triggered. Um, so the Hindus have this thing where they're, they're, they're convinced yeah, there's a love jihad, yeah. where Muslim men are seducing them. And yet it seems like in East Asia, you know, this sort of, I mean, there is some angry reaction. Like I've heard of like, you know, there was a famous incident in South, well, not famous, but there was an incident in South Korea a couple of years ago where a Pakistani man was sitting next to a Korean woman and um, they were friends. I don't even know if they were in a relationship, but there was like some sort of like verbal racial abuse on the subway from Korean man because, you know, you shouldn't be sitting with this foreign man, et cetera. That's really, so I'm not saying that those feelings are not there. And yet I do get the sense, like, you know, there is a stereotype, which is I think fading now because of like development of like white men coming to China and dating Chinese women and, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and we've been mostly talking about men finding foreign women in this, in this podcast, but um, I'm just curious what the Chinese perspective on, foreign men with Chinese women um, is like, it, you know, is there a lot of anger and it's just like sublimated or, you know, I mean, I, I just wonder what this difference comes from. Like, do you have any intuition? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, <laughs> so a lot of the, the, the time that um, it's, especially back in the eighties, in the older time, you, you if you are a foreign, foreign uh, man, you're in China uh, with a, the Chinese partner, um, people usually kind of look at you, just assume that um, like either she's a hooker or she's you know she's just with you because of your passport. <laughs> I mean, like that that was just assumed that back then. And I mean, th- there's not too much um, like taboo, social taboo against uh, out marriage. Uh, as like say back in the 19th century, because back in the 19th century there was a serious taboo against um, you know like say uh, Chinese women marrying uh, foreign with uh, foreign men. It was like um, I remember reading about um, 
accounts of 19th century Hong Kong. Uh, it, it was just not done. But well, back then, a lot of the ch- more say well-to-do Chinese women from a good families they're mostly cloistered anyway. They, they don't, they're, don't, they're not allowed to go out of the house. Um, so, so back then, say in Hong Kong, the only Chinese women available to the foreign men were um, the tankas, who were basically on the very bo- bottom rung of the Cantonese society. They they were like kind of kind of like untouchables. They were they were despised, and that only the tanka women who you know usually engaged in prostitution trade or whatever would be even open to uh, having relationship with foreign men, and and that has evolved quite a bit, you know, through the last hundred years, um, to the point that there's not really a, a social taboo. Um, but it's, yes, there's a lot of resentment, of course, from the Chinese men that that's all, always there. I mean, I even see it on social media, you know, basically the Chinese men complaining that, uh, the Western men enjoys this kind of edge, right, in the dating and the marriage market, um, and and they they just complain that oh, you know, somehow the, the the Chinese women are not patriotic enough, or you know, they 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 would always uh, kiss up to the foreigners, you know, think you know, foreigner is better. I mean, there's a lot of bitterness. I mean, I I a lot of this. Um, I mean, I, from my personal opinion, it doesn't. Uh, it's not significant from all this anger of, say, like the incels in the West, right? It's just the anger of they're not getting laid, and uh, and 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 they what they perceive as like kind of unfairness in the dating and uh, and the marriage market. But but socially, like let's say it's not um, it's not. Like let's say like a like a parents if they have a, a a daughter who who is married to a foreign man there's not there's not uh, there's not that same social taboo as used to have back in the nineteenth century like like now now it's just oh it's okay I mean it's not a it's not a big deal does mm. that make sense. Mm. Yeah, it does. I mean, so I mean, I think um, maybe Zach can jump in because he's he he spent more time in South. I mean, a lot more time in South Asia than I have. Um, I think the issue in in you know in South Asia, for example, and I think West Asia as well, though, it's it's as if like um, if you're in part of a patrilineal kin group, which I know exists in China as well. Um, and so I guess the issue is we have these anthropological categories of patriarchal societies, and it's not a spectrum. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think China, you could say, is a generally patriarchal society. Sure. And, you know, in South Asia and West Asia, these are also patriarchal, patrilineal societies. The kin groups are through the males. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these are groups of men that that um, kind of control the prestige of their lineage. Mm-hmm. So if you're if – you're, if, you're, um, if a woman from your lineage group mm-hmm. – uh, marries out that reflects on your honor and this is why there is such extreme violence Mm -hmm. that emerges out of it and so i guess like my question is like what is going on in the minds of a patrilineal kin group in china when you know they you know this woman marries a westerner and you just said people perceive them you know to be prostitutes or something i mean maybe not today i mean you know yeah yeah. i mean like back in the 80s yeah yeah like like the Basically, the back in the eighties, the perception is that like that that woman is a social climber, right? Like a gold digger, 
Um, and, and, uh, but, but other than that, it's, there's not really like, uh, I, I know what you're talking about, but like, let's say if like uh, my cousin, uh, uh, my cousin marrying a, a foreigner, it's not a really a big deal. It's, I mean, it's not, it doesn't reflect say badly on the family, <laughs> it, nothing like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, also you are, you, know, you are not your cousin's keeper. I'm sorry. You are not your cousin's keeper. Exactly. No, no, not at all. No, not, 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 not like that. Like we, we, uh, I mean, I mean, like it's it, it, there's there, like within some family, right. That, you know, there might be some, some, some kind of, uh, pressure. Like, you know, they, if they think that was a bad choice and they might talk to the cousins or whatever, but really there's a, the power over say like your female cousins is really limited. It's, it's only like you can tell them, Oh, I, I, I think that's a bad idea. You know, like, I don't think that guy, I think that guy's up to no good, but blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, I mean, China has changed quite a bit because my, uh, my grandparents, um, both of both on both sides, they were, um, in arranged marriages, uh, like my, my, uh, all of them got introduced by marriage brokers. Right. And then my, my parents were actually the first generation that, um, met on their own, right. Cause just because the cultural revolution caused such a shock to the Chinese society. And then my, my dad were sent away, both, both my dad and my, my mom were sent away from their home home cities and they, they end up in, <laughs> in Tibet and, and they met and fall in love and got married. So they were the first generation, um, that was not, uh, you know, like met through arranged marriage. And then, and that has been the case ever since pretty much. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like, there's the, like not that <laughs> same level of, um, control mm. within the clan group uh, over marriage anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, I mean, that's just like really straightforward. Like if the marriages are not arranged, if the family is not involved in that already, um, it seems like their control and level of consider, because part of the issue with, you know, female honor in some of these societies is all the marriages are basically arranged. And if you, if you lose face and if you lose honor because of the actions of one person that can actually percolate to the whole kin group. Right in terms of impact impacting the marriage prospects of your cousins right. or, you know, even your second cousins, because word spreads, uh, this is the type of person is produced by this family. And so um, it's a huge, huge impact on other people. I mean, so, I mean, that, that's an interesting contrast. Um, so I guess like, um, you know, we need to, we should close out. I, I am curious about, so I know that this is sensational, but let's like put the sensationality sure. aside you do have this sex imbalance. It's huge, this gender imbalance in rural mm -hmm. China. Um, China's getting wealthier, uh, but Vietnam is as well. I mean, I guess, like, do you have an educated guess on what the – I mean, are these men just going to be single or are they going to find wives from somewhere? And if somewhere, where? Like, can you can you have a general sense? Because, um, you know, like – I've, I, you know, before we got on the podcast, I was Googling it and like, you know, there are, there are Chinese men now who are marrying African yeah. women, you know, which um, obviously would be like totally surprising, like yeah. 10, 20, 30 yeah. years ago. 
So, I mean, what do you see in the proceeding into the future on, on this specific question of like the demographic imbalance and how it gets resolved? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so traditionally, there's has always been a segment of Chinese male that never find wives and never get married, never pass on offsprings. I mean, like in, in particularly in the part of China I'm in right now, the Yangtze Delta region, which has a very good record keeping and um, the... Um, I know many, um, it, it, this part of history was being very well studied. Um, and, and what they found out that was uh, in, in the lower Yangtze Delta region of China in the last um, um, four, four, five hundred years, it, it has always been the most densely populated part of China. Uh, but what they observed was as the Chinese population exploded, um, the the population in Yangtze Delta stay fairly constant, and what they find out was uh, there were specific mechanism for that. It's because the the lower twenty um, percent, you know, the the twenty percent of the men who are on the bo- bottom rung, they just end up never getting married and have because they couldn't afford to have wives, so they never passed on offsprings. And it's like the the, the um, it's the, the uh, the downward mobility, right? It pushes other people, <laughs> the other people who became poor, then became replaced some generation after generation, and 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 I see some part of that uh, plays out, right? Because because like right now the marriage market is very competitive in China. That that is whole reason why there's a whole proliferation of these like marriage brokers trying to bring in foreign women, but also. Um, proliferation of sex trade, you know, inside China itself. Uh, and and, and that somehow alleviate, I guess, if you can, if that's the right word, the problem, but um, there will always be uh, a segment of the Chinese male population, just like, just like historically, they will never get married, never, they will never pass on their genes. And, and, you know, the, that will be that. You know, uh, what brings to my, I know we're wrapping up uh, soon enough, but what brings to my mind is that in Israel, I once read an article about this, I don't know how true or not it is, but in the Orthodox community, like an Ashkenazi boy, um, if he's really desperate and he's really a no hope, uh, I mean, they'll offer him Sephardic girls as a wife. And in a lot of ways, what I kind of feel I know it's a bit controversial to say this, but I think it's pretty. Uh, I, I think that's what the uh, backlash is with the whole Pakistani bride, uh, Chinese man, uh, groom thing is that you are really seeing the twenty percent who would have never gotten married, and as you say, and they are kind of the ones who are now actually going abroad and siph- essentially siphoning women from poorer countries. And Pakistan is always a perpetual basket case, so. It's so, so I think there's a bit of that yes. dynamic going on. Yes, yes. Like these, these men, otherwise, in traditional China, they would just not have any prospect of finding wives at all. Now, now they have the options of, say, going abroad. But I, I, I like, like I said, the, the, the yeah. I mean, there's such a big, um, I mean, the, the numbers that would be needed to kind of uh, completely um <laughs> like like uh, to balance that out i don't think that number can be easily found outside china so i still think 
there will still be a significant number of men that will remain single or so-called bare branches. But yes, some of them will be able to find wives through means like like getting brides from overseas. Well, so um, yeah, yeah, I mean that's that. So I guess like you know, as we're wrapping up, um, you know, it seems like a lot of this is just you know the sensational tabloid aspect of it. And, um, you know, unfortunately there aren't too many, um, Chinese people on Twitter. So most of the responses to the tweets that are out about this story and the Chinese, uh, deputy ambassador of China, I think posted something with a, I don't know. Uh, I don't know Urdu, so I don't know what she said. Um, with, but, uh, a woman yeah. with a Chinese, I, I retweeted it yesterday um, I don't. Did you, Zach? Did you see my tweet? I don't understand Urdu. I don't know what she said. What did she say? I'm trying to. Uh, I didn't see that tweet at all. So um, let me. Uh, yeah. Let me. Um, I'm gonna find it. <laughs> We're gonna do this in real time here because I. It really like annoys me that I should know some more South Asian languages. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm gonna post it right here. Okay, I got it. Um, so this is not this. This woman looks. Uh, Let's just say that she looks um, – she does not look like a yeah. poor um, peasant or anything like that. Zach, I just posted the link in the chat. Um, oh, okay, yes. Okay. I was looking for it. Okay, and if you can put put yourself on mute and listen to it and tell me what she says because I don't know what she's saying. So there are people um, in the responses. A lot of Pakistanis are angry. They're saying they should be banned, uh, that this is wrong. So they're taking it like as if it's national honor. Um in any case, like some people are saying like, this is fake, that she's an actress and this is not a real couple. Um, it's just like lots of weird responses. And so, I mean, yeah, honestly, like um, she's pretty attractive, frankly. So I, I do wonder if, uh, if um, this was just like a PR thing, which I don't, I don't have like that much of a problem with, but um, I don't know what she's saying. And um it's just a, not someone that looks like they would have a very difficult time finding a husband in Pakistan. Let's just put it that way. So I don't know what's going yeah. on. With, what's going on with that? Um, you know. Uh, yeah. So the video I saw, it was uh, like you say, it's a very attractive Pakistani woman. Um, I guess he's she's posing with a with a Chinese man or supposed to be Chinese man in the in the video, and it's mostly her talk her talking. Um, and I'm assuming I, I don't know her either. I'm assuming she's talking about um, like like the, the the intermarriage happened out of consent and and and, 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 and you know love should be free. That, that that's my assumption. But we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the expert. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I because I, I was like listening and I can. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I saw video right now. No, she's just saying that she loves China and that her husband. I mean, basically, she's just saying. She's saying it's really good. She's being respected by her in-laws. She's really happy. But, I mean, she's a very pretty girl. And, like, uh, I mean, she, I, she's almost... I would be shocked if she's Muslim because what she's wearing and the way she's comported herself, she's definitely Christian. But, I mean, it's, uh, you know, like, she's a lot better looking than her husband. So, you know, he, he's obviously... Well, I, I think that's what some of the anger is about. <laughs> yeah, but also the way she's dressed and she's sitting on his knee, it's like... I mean, you know, when I switch into Pakistani mode, it's like, oh my God, I can't see, like, you know, like I can understand that does aggravate a lot of people. But okay, so Pakistan, why, why is it aggravating? I mean, like, no, no, I'm just saying the Pakistanis, you know, we don't do PDA, right? It's not, I mean, I'm just saying the traditional culture and she's there sitting on her husband's knee talking about how great life is. I mean, it's fine, but 
obviously there's this whole thing. It's also a question of humiliation, right, for a lot of Pakistanis because now, you know, like Pakistan banned um, Pakistani women from working as maids in the Middle East. So Pakistani women do not work as maids in the Middle East. So there's, uh, you know, what you were talking about, the whole idea of honor resting in the women. I don't think it applies so much to China because of the cultural revolution. But for Pakistan, it's a huge thing. And now, and this is economics, right? All these women, I mean, um, we have the reverse problem and it's all over Muslim society. There are a lot of women and there are just not enough men to go around. So if you go to any Muslim culture, any Muslim society, even in diaspora, it's the same phenomenon. It's the spinster effect. So these women and the Chinese seem to be quite practical, right? So they're the types, they're very utilitarian they kind of sort things out. They don't look at it with an emotional lens. And they're, you know, responding to, you know, both sides are responding to a market demand. So it's probably just going to happen in a more sensitive manner because I've been reading the reports as well. And they're pretty shocking because a lot of the girls are saying that they're being forced to sleep with other men. So it's almost like, you know, I'm just saying what I'm reading in the English language reports. It's, you know, even I get a bit, you know, like it boils my blood as well. Like, you know, you don't want to see Pakistani women as glorified any women i mean that is that has been like a problem that has been reported in some parts of china i I wouldn't be surprised if it does if it doesn't happen in some cases the key is like what is the quantity what is the magnitude is it disproportionate is it systematic um i think we need to withhold judgment on that you know um just because i mean you know we don't know um and uh we just we just need to be careful about these things. Like like I said, like the organ stuff, I'm skeptical because every time I look into the organ stuff, it's always like tabloid rumors. And you know, of course, in China they do everything. And you know, so I mean, it, it, that's like playing upon stereotypes. So um, you know, I think we just need to be careful about that. Um, so uh, yeah, I guess we we need to close up. I was going to ask like one last question. Um, you know, with this, uh, there's there's these uh, questions. Um, it's not a big deal, but about like these men are lying and they're saying they're converting to Christianity and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it seems from the Pakistani perspective <laughs> that uh, they are just uh, outraged and shocked that someone would do this. And, you know, my own perception is from the Chinese perspective, it's just not that big of a deal. I yeah. mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, they're just like whatever. We'll say we're Christian. We don't really care. I mean, that was. Okay. I'm assuming that's what's going on there. They don't understand like how outraged um, a religious person from Pakistan, whether they're Muslim or Christian, would view some sort of nominal religious, um, you know, aver, you know, saying that they're Christian. I mean, there are a lot of devout Christians in China, but um, I can just imagining some person being like, okay, yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah. If you want me to be Christian, whatever. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then they go, then they go to China and the guy like doesn't really care, yeah. you know. I mean, so they're like, "What is this?" And it's just like, "Well, I mean, it's a very practical move, right?" Yeah. So that's just like big cultural difference there. So there's all these cultural differences that we're trying to, um, uh, you know, jump. And it's interesting, like as we close out, like you know, I, I do like to like I'm very curious uh, about Asian societies in general because you know, in the age of like European hegemony, you know, we talk about Asian societies and Asian values, but now that Asia is like, you know, you know what, it's like almost half the world's economy or something. It's like a huge part of the, it's not half, but it's coming up there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we need to like start thinking of these societies as distinct and individual, individual and and like totally different streams of like human civilization. And what you were saying, you know, about like, 
Pakistani men or Pakistani people, especially if they're lighter skin, like almost being viewed as Western in China. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not totally crazy in some ways. Um, it's, you know, like obviously like, you know, genetically that's one thing, but even culturally, I think there are some ways where I think um, East Asians are different from. Um, so, I mean, Carl, I will tell you, I was with, um, I was with a, uh, I would say more of an acquaintance, but a relatively like well-off person, a very well-off person. Um, uh, and they were saying that um, they were in China, like Silicon Valley investor type. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese government was pretty angry or like confused as to why there were so many more Indian American executives, <laughs> Indian. Some of them, they were Indian, but like, you know, like the, the number of like executives of South Asian background in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. Um, is way disproportionate compared to the number of East Asian, of Chinese in particular, even though in the pipeline, there's probably still more Chinese. And they, 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 they didn't understand what was going on here. And um, a lot of people just have told me in Silicon Valley, it's partly because like Indian people, like their personality is um, more outgoing, more talkative, more aggressive. And um, that integrates well within, like, the quote-unquote leadership culture. And I think on, on of, top of, of that, the, 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 like, a lot of the educated in Indian elite, they're already kind of embedded in the Western culture. Um, you know, from, from, say, like, somebody educated uh, in China, right, straight out of, out of China, they come from, like, a totally different cultural background, right, let's say, um, whereas somebody from India... Um, you know, from a, like a, educating a top school, whatever, they're already like kind of having a, I want to say acculturated in the Western culture before they even come to United States. And I think that does help. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting contrast. I mean, like, you know, I have like friends in the conservative movement and, uh, you know, they have various attitudes towards China. I mean, I think I'm, I think it's pretty obvious I'm relatively sinophilic, um, but uh, now some people are quite less so. And you know they view India as basically um, the great ally against the rise. Of, <laughs> yeah, I know what rise you're about. Of, the rise of the dragon, right? It's basically like you know the, when the twenty first. The, the, the Anglosphere, right? I, I, used to be a talk of the yeah. Anglosphere. Yeah, yeah. We don't talk about it as much anymore, but I mean, it's not even Anglosphere. Yeah. It's just like realpolitik, right? Yeah. Yeah, but also that you know that is India a Western country? Uh, is it going to be another Japan in a way profoundly different, but also Western in a certain aspect? And I think you know, um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's very very fascinating because this is going to be the great question: if uh, Pakistan is China's proxy, then India is obviously going to be uh, the proxy of. Uh, the U.S. or, or West. West. So, well, so I, I think the key thing to distinguish is because of English medium education, um, the Indian cultural elite is to some extent um, it is continuous with the Western cultural elite. There, yes. there, there are node points like say someone like Salman Rushdie or Arduti Roy. Arduti Roy is an Indian cultural notable, but she's also a figure in the West, if, if more yeah. marginally so. Salman Rushdie is probably 50-50 in terms of his prominence as a British yeah. or Western intellectual and as an Indian. And so you have these people that are transmitting cultural mores and values um, 
across the ecosystem. So the Indian cultural ecosystem is connected in some way with the yeah. Western one. And then there's a whole like these Hindu nationalist intellectuals who are not connected with the West. And that causes some problems with their like uh, optics, um, with the way they're, they're perceived. But these people, these Hindu nationalists are connected with the Western oriented ones. So you can like go step by step from India to the West mm-hmm. um, in terms of cultural influencers. I don't think that's the case in China and frankly, right. like this is where Japan is also different because the Japanese turned away from multilingualism at some point in the 20th century. It used to be much more, you know, they used to study German and English much more around the 20 early 20th century, mm-hmm. and then they turned away from multilingualism. And I think that sealed them away from any sort of organic, continuous, progressive change towards Westernization. And I think we're going to see in India that it's going to be like this weird hybrid hybrid development where as India is rising now, it's becoming, so, I mean, what I said on the previous podcast, um, the one that will come before yours, uh, Carl, uh, is, uh, or, you know, as listeners listen to this, it has come before yours, is that, you know, from the late 1990s in the United States, and you were in the United States too, we saw the future as the end of history, and the end of history was Western man. And everybody was a Western man, except, you know, they spoke different language, they were physically maybe not all white, uh, they ate with chopsticks, but, you know, person in Shanghai is basically the same as a person in New York, but they eat with chopsticks, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's basically that's basically what we thought. I mean, like, yeah. does anyone disagree? I mean, that's what we thought in 1999, right? Yeah. Um, what we're seeing with China now, and also even with India, is as they're economically rising to power, they see no need to become homo westernists. You know, they're doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. They're going on their own path. And um, you know, I'm not I'm not supportive of all the decisions or all the directions they're going. On the other hand, I feel like some of the reaction in the West is a um it's almost like a victorian school marm like how dare you well i never you know like you're not going on the path that was laid out for you by us right. um at some like gap meeting in the late 1990s when you know there's this one western model this one euro american model that we've agreed to and you guys need to get with the program and there's a disconnect here because with China's economic rise and its influence, you don't need to get with the program unless you want to. And so China's starting to pick and choose. Right. I think it's almost understandable to see how some people felt threatened because we, we have about 500 years of Western hegemony. Well, depends on which region, but at least like a hundred years, 150 years of, of Western hegemony in much of, much of the world. And now like that, that, model is being threatened and I, I can see why some people uh, you know react negatively to that but like it or not that that's already happening I mean that's that's one of my impressions after uh, my one month in China like this is like the the, the moving away um, from the Western hegemony has it's it's well underway I mean it's 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 this like so obvious just um, I'm physically in China, you know, in some no-tier China, Chinese city that nobody hear about. Uh, whereas, whereas like 10, 20 years ago, I would just be impressed with the pace of change that, that the amount of development. And now I feel like, oh, wow, this is actually a city I could consider living. I mean, that's a huge change. Uh, like I would never have thought that like even in 2010, but now in 2019, I'm like, 
wow, this is this is this is nice. This is uh, you know, I don't mind living here. I mean that that's a big that's a big difference. Yeah, I mean you know as we close out, like I will say, um, we are today. Um, we are no one alive today remembers what it was like before um, Euro American hegemony. Yes. Like our whole lives have been defined by the fact that Europe, Western Europe in particular, Northern and Western Europe, and the United States, Canada, uh, you know, the white dominions like Australia, New Zealand, like these are the lodestars of civilization. They are what we aspire to. Um, you know, these are the people that set the terms for human civilization in, on this planet in the long 20th century. Uh, nobody remembers an age before that, but, um, you know, unless, unless some of us, you know, like, you know, we could die of a heart attack tomorrow. Who knows? Right. But if we have a normal life, if we have a normal life expectancy, we will live beyond, we will live considerably beyond the age of what, of this Western supremacy. We will, we will move into a new age that no one that we, even when we were young, there was nobody alive that remembered a time before that remembered say, you know, 1800 when it was still kind of vague and you know the chinese empire still had right. pretense possibly of being a parody and economically it actually was it was just you know there were issues with force protection but in any case india was already like partially de facto colonized even though it was just the east india company so i mean this is so far in the past when there was parity between these asian societies and euro america you know basically like the greater white world that we don't know what it's going to be like when that's not setting the terms of the debate. Mm-hmm. We're learning how to have a discussion and how to think about these yeah. things now. And it's difficult. And that's why I think you have freakouts because when the old paradigm is not useful, there's still not usually a new paradigm that can replace it. And in these in-between periods, there's going to be a lot of stress and anxiety sure. because people like rules, right? And so, um, for example, like, you know, these Pakistanis, I mean, they're having some like, really, like, intense reactions. And yet I think there's also part of them that's a little confused because on some level, the people that are oppressing them are white mm. Christians. Like, that is sure. just the default assumption throughout much of recent history and that is the paradigm that people are raised um you know like white christians like you know christian europe united states like these are the superpowers that are going to be oppressing that you live in the shadow of the rise of china so rapidly from a you know 1990 where it's like was at the level was like below India on a per capita basis by some yeah. estimates to now when I'm looking up the GDP numbers, it's at parity with Eastern European no- countries. It has higher income than many of the, than say the Ukraine, yeah. some of these Eastern European countries, parts of China, like Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen yeah. are definitely yeah. developed societies, you know, like, as you just said, uh, I think we're still trying to like wrap our minds around it. I think the Chinese, in a way, it's easier for, for people in China because it's this huge internal economy, huge internal culture. They don't need sure. the rest of the world in some way. You know, they don't. Um, and that's where we're at right now. And so what you're trying to figure this out is part of why I like having discussions with you. And they always go long because there's just so much to talk about. Um, and I think you're, you're our first um, 
repeat guest. So you know, what, what, let's uh, let's okay. talk about something more positive next time we talk. I mean, I, I don't. I think we, I think we dispelled some some you know maybe some of the alarmism, okay. but you know, this is a serious topic, and uh, I hope I hope that um it clears. Um, Zach, you got any um any uh final final words? Uh, no, no. I think that it's been a fascinating podcast, and I think um, I'm pretty much in broad agreement uh, with what you guys have said. Um, I think that China is definitely upending the entire world, and it's only natural. And I think a lot of the internal conversations we've been having in the West is, I think the West is trying to reinvent itself as a global civilization. But I think that that process now is kind of being stymied by the fact that there is now a very uh, strong non-Western power that is a billion and a half people, almost a world in its own right, and they aren't accepting the philosophical dictums that are emerging from nylon, so to speak. So it's it's, it's interesting, you know, as the Chinese like to say, <laughs> I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, we live in interesting times. So. Yeah, we definitely live in interesting times. Wow, this was an interesting podcast. It was great to have you on, Carl. Um, and, um, you know, people can find you on Twitter. Um, uh, what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, it's just my name, Carl Za. Uh, that's Carl, start, spell with a C, C-A-R-L. And my last name, Z-H-A, that's Z as in zebra, H as in Henry, A as in, as in apple. So Carl Za, one, one word. And you have a podcast um, that you've been, uh, it's a solo right now. Um, can you yes. tell, tell, tell people what they should look for on whatever they search on? Yeah, um, you can just either search my name in Google, again, Carl Za, or um, you can search um, for Silk and Steel podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Um, well, it was great to talk to you. Oh, sorry, one last question. I'm really sorry. Who is the profile pic? Is it a is it a Tajiki woman or who is Oh, oh my Twitter profile picture? Yeah. Oh, um, yes. she's actually a Kurdish a female Kurdish fighter oh. um yeah. that died in I think a couple years ago. There was a she died in the fight against ISIS. And she was actually referred to uh, by some stupid British media as uh, the Angelina Jolie of the, the Kurdish uh, Kurdish militia. Um, her name was um, um, Asia uh, Ramazan Antar. Yeah, yeah, I heard about her. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, maybe someday we should talk about um, Syria. I know you've gotten into some um, tussles on that question um, yeah. on Twitter. You get into a lot of tussles, and uh, it's always. Yeah, uh, you always live in interesting online times, and so do I. So, um, <laughs> you know, we got our haters out there, but uh, maybe we're doing something right. Yeah. All right. All right, I'll talk to you later, bro. All right, thanks. Tune in next week for Brown Cat.